Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 28th, 2019, and this is episode 127. Politicos is the BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash politicoast. Scott Glenboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, Jody Wilson-Raybould speaks her truth. How are we feeling about that phrase, speaks her truth? It's not a great phrase. Yeah, it's got that little postmodern feel to it if everyone has their own truth when I think she gave a real truth. Jagmeet Singh gets elected, and we'll just finish off by talking about how out of touch Andrew Wilkinson is because that's what's been on Twitter all day. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Let's kick it off with just some light interference. Jody Wilson-Raybould gave a interesting testimony to the Justice Committee yesterday afternoon. Yes, this was long-awaited testimony by Jody Wilson-Raybould. A few days ago, it was announced that the cabinet had waived cabinet confidence for the period and issue surrounding SNC-Lavalin. So yeah, we've been talking about the SNC-Lavalin scandal for a few weeks now. And it seems like we will be talking about it for a few weeks more and possibly up until the election at this point, the way it's going. Yes, this isn't like a uh, February flash in the pan, as some podcasts had suggested. Well, that was just Justin Ling, to Jen Gerson's credit. She seemed to identify this was a real thing. We'll get into the details, I think, rather than rehash the whole background as we go through Ms. Wilson-Raybould's testimony. The interesting thing, though, that did come up is in waiving cabinet confidence and the solicitor-client privilege that they held with her as attorney general, she emphasized it only went up to the day of the cabinet shuffle. And you could tell there are things she wanted to say and tread very carefully not to say anything other than to kind of leave you a hint. But she comes before the Justice Committee to try and give her interpretation of events that led up to this Globe and Mail story a few weeks ago suggesting there was political interference around whether or not the prosecutors should pursue essentially a deal with SNC-Lavalin. And I think a lot of people didn't know what to expect with this meeting. There was some thoughts that, you know, maybe she'll make some vague accusations or kind of hint at stuff. That didn't happen. No, not at all. Right off the bat, she says these events involved 11 people, exclude myself, and political staff. From the Prime Minister's office, the Privy Council office, and the office of the Minister of Finance. These included in-person conversations, telephone calls, emails, and text messages. There were approximately 10 phone calls and 10 meetings specifically about SNC-Lavalin that I and or my staff was a part of. So this was more than the conversation in passing that some in the PMO had suggested. No, yeah, she describes it as a period of four months that was a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to politically interfere in the exercise of her prosecutorial discretion. And she goes on from there. She describes some of these as veiled threats. She really emphasizes this wasn't just, you know, a matter of opinion or people just giving context. This was strong statements. And then she read for another, like, 35 minutes straight, recounting through her copious notes all of these events. And I really encourage listening to this week's Boys in Short Pants since they talk in depth about this scandal up till now and her testimony and emphasize the point that one lawyer trick is when you think things are going to go bad, you start taking a lot of notes. And it's clear she was taking a lot of notes. So she talks about how this goes essentially all the way up to the top. And one of the most shocking ones is this meeting she has in September with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, where... She's expressing her concerns or frustration that she keeps getting asked by his staff and others about this deal with SNC, which she's already decided not to go ahead with. And she was clear that when she makes a decision that is hers to make, it's final. 
But she says the PM jumped in, stressing that there's an election in Quebec and that, quote, I am an MP in Quebec, the member for Papineau. She said, I was taken aback. My response, and I remember this vividly, was to ask the prime minister a direct question while looking him in the eye. I asked, are you politically interfering with my role, my decision as the attorney general? I would strongly advise against it. And the prime minister said, no, no, no. We just need to find a solution. And that really encapsulates so many of the responses that kept coming to her from Trudeau, from Gerald Butts, from Katie Telford, from the clerk of the Privy Council office, who's supposed to be nonpartisan, and others. This, you need to find a solution. There's got to be a solution here. Come on, there's a solution. You know you know what we're talking about. Yeah, that, that was really clear. The, the word solution appears a lot in this uh, testimony, and it, it's very clear that the government felt that there was one right answer to it, and they needed the solution to get to that answer. This is clear in conversations Gerald Butts was having with Wilson Raybould's chief of staff, Jessica Prince, which are recorded in text messages. So this isn't just hearsay and allegations and he said, she said. Wilson Raybould goes on to tell the committee, Jerry, Gerald Butts, said, Jess, there is no solution here that doesn't involve some interference. And I guess she was told back, at least they are finally being honest about what they are asking you to do. I think this is Jessica Prince. Don't care about the PPSC's independence, public prosecutors. Katie Telford was like, we don't want to debate legalities anymore. They kept being like, we aren't lawyers, but there has to be some solution here. So that's bad. Yes, but not quite as bad as a later conversation um, Jerry Butts has with the attorney general, where he basically straight up says, it's a Harper law and I don't like it. Referring to some of the accountability acts. and Yeah, so the, the act that governs the director of public prosecutions was a Harper act that was kind of brought in as part of the accountability reforms very early in the government's tenure, right after taking over from the very scandal-prone uh, Martin and Trichin governments. So with these increasing number and frequency and different conversations she's faced with, at one point in her testimony, she says, during a meeting with the clerk of the Privy Council office, she starts having flashbacks to the Saturday Night Massacre when Nixon fired his Department of Justice so that he could find someone who was willing to play ball. That's not a great look for Canada's justice minister to be having thoughts about some of the worst political scandals in the U.S. and going, am I entering this situation? Maybe she's exaggerating. But one thing I really took away from this testimony, and we've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about different people presenting evidence, namely Daryl Plekis here in B.C., and Wilson Raybould bled credibility in this testimony. She walked in there confidently. She hadn't spouted her mouth off over the last few weeks. She basically said, you know, I can't say anything but I want to have the opportunity to speak my truth. I want to say my piece. So when she sits in front of the Justice Committee, she talks confidently. She talks in facts and specifics. And everyone else has pretty much been left scrambling, using talking points. And the really telling thing is, is no one has directly contradicted any events she has mentioned or any quotes she has said. They will say, oh, I interpreted it different, or I didn't feel like it was pressure. But then we're just getting into the subjective interpretation of an event and not the actual facts, which she has laid out pretty thoroughly. And when you compare that to Daryl Plekis, for example, who does a good job, as we've talked about, laying out facts, but also tends to editorialize and aggrandize some of the surrounding narrative. So full credit to Jody Wilson-Raybould. Yes, uh, she was very compelling at the committee and yeah, just exuded credibility. And I think at this point, there's not a huge amount the government can say on this, or well, the liberals can say that isn't going to require a huge amount of documentation to back up that, that would undermine that. I watched the first three or four rounds of questioning. I think they went into like the sixth round I, or something I more. made it to about three hours into the thing. I wasn't able to live stream it, unfortunately, but followed up a little later. And I was trying to discern what the liberal tactics were in the questions or where their narratives would be coming out. Because the conservative questions, and 
Lisa Wright did fantastic. She is a brilliant politician and a star on the conservative bench. She asked very short, brief questions that gave Wilson-Raybould a lot more time to bury the government, which is a good tactic for the opposition. Murray Rankin from the NDP also made great statements, but they were more, here's a long statement, wouldn't you agree kind of question, as opposed to letting her speak more. The liberals, I think, were trying to find weaknesses, but struggling. So they would ask, clarify these two meetings, and she basically had it down. Or why didn't you resign earlier type questions? And they asked that a lot. I think that's where they were really trying to get, you know, do you... And they did like three questions on, do you have confidence in the prime minister? Yeah, that's where Randy Glossino got specifically, is that... Yeah, on why didn't you resign? It even got to the point after one of the rounds, it was like, I feel like we're trying to over the same territory again and again. Yeah, I think Glossino's, do you have confidence in the prime minister, was an interesting question because she didn't... There was a very long pause, and then she said well, I'll say this, and then talked about her decision to resign as cabinet minister as much as she could while still bound by cabinet confidence. And she said pointedly, I'd no longer have confidence in cabinet, and the head of cabinet is the prime minister. She hasn't torn up her liberal card, though, and that's, I think, the new question. But maybe we'll speculate on that in a bit. The other liberal tactic that didn't come up in the committee but Trudeau brought it up in his press conference later that evening, was this jobs line. So, Scott, why do you hate jobs? Shouldn't the government do literally everything, including obstructing justice and breaking the law to, or maybe not breaking the law, but, you know, offering sweetheart deals to corrupt companies that pay for dictators' children to go to sex rings or something like that? Yeah, that was actually an interesting story, the National Post broke. Where SNC had spent something like $2 million in total, only about 30000 of which was actually on the sets ring for uh, Gaddafi's son when he visited Canada. But uh, yeah, not great. But getting back to the original question, jobs are good, but you know the rule of law is a little more important than 9,000 jobs. And how, how many people are employed in Canada? 10 million. 18.6 million people in the labor force. This is four one-hundredths of a percent of the labor force that would have to look for more work. Now, work that is out there for them, because, you know, if SNC folds, those contracts don't go away. Those projects are still getting built. Just the letterhead of the company that's going to be on the checks for those employees and those engineers will be a little different. Well, and that's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about today, especially for how can the NDP respond in a way that's different or unique and really stands out. And frankly, if you have a super corrupt company or if you have a company that's facing all these corruption allegations and they're going to pull out of the country and move their headquarters to London out of spite, say fuck it and nationalize their, you know, seize their operations and just run it. To nationalization with well, you. if it's an important industry enough for the country, if it's too big to fail as it's basically being treated, then we can run it, it in the it interim. Someone else, like it can w- be a WSP or Stantec, one of the other companies will facilitate that. Yeah, can pick up and buy out the assets when they go bankrupt. It's not going to be a huge thing. And like, I don't even get the like Quebec politics aspect. I, I'm not going to pretend I have a deep insight into the Quebec psyche, but okay, company that employed 3,400 some odd Quebecers has to go bankrupt because they were found criminally guilty of bribery. Is this really going to be the sort of thing that triggers a massive change in the voting behavior? I struggle to understand it as well. I know It does feel like one of those situations that would make a lot more sense if the money was clearly going directly into the Liberal pockets. I mean, it went into the Liberals' pockets for a little while through an illegal campaign fundraising scheme that they were also found, I believe, found guilty on or pled they definitely had to return the money. Yeah. They and, got in was, trouble for it. Yes. And their CEO recently had his charges drop because of court delays. Like, th- th- this is not like a one-off thing with the uh, company. But yeah, the, the politics of this has been bizarre. Like, just how deeply SNC has their hooks into the Liberal Party is surprising for, like, the face value of 
the number of jobs, the amount of money that has changed. Like all, all of like this stuff seems way out of scale with how much the liberals are willing to risk for this. Like I've said a number of times, it does fit the expectation for the liberals that this is the kind it's of an shit on brand get. scandal yeah. in a way. But like I've also said, it's one I would have expected to happen later and not to so clearly taint the prime minister himself. Like usually feels like they're good enough to keep keep his hands clean, at least the appearance of. So a Gerald Butts resignation can be the sacrificial lamb. Now we're going to find out more about Gerald Butts next week when he talks to the Justice Committee. So more content on this. But the question I come back to is after hearing Wilson Raybould's testimony, what strategies do the Liberals have left other than to keep hoping Canadians don't care? There really is not a good strategy on this. Um, Because they are kind of in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. You could do the, we're cleaning house, and basically anyone who got named in Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould's testimony uh, is now looking for work. Which would include Justin? Yeah, maybe not the prime minister. But like, and that's where ba- they get in trouble, right? Yeah, but basically do a big house cleaning. You know, would, you know maybe have Bill Marneau announce he's not running again. You know, something like that. Really clean house. And do like, a, okay, this is behind us now that, you know, the, the, the guilty parties have had their consequences. T- time to move on. It's still going to be a big hit. But, you, you know, if they do that now, there's time to re- recover. The other option is basically Hunter down... But that also means you have to worry about that, you know, trickle of news stories that just keeps this out there. And Wilson-Raybould's testimony provides a ton of ammunition for oppo attack ads for the next several months. One of the things the Conservatives have picked up on is this call for the Prime Minister to resign. And this is what Scheer did almost immediately after the testimony. And I feel like the reaction to it was in some bits oh, people are always calling for Trudeau to resign. I don't think the leader of the opposition has called for Trudeau I was, to resign. Sheer did. Before this. Oh, yeah. And I, mean, I was try, first... actually trying to look back because Sheer has called for Morneau to resign. He's called for other cabinet members to resign. The NDP, I think, has called for cabinet members to resign in the past. But the prime minister is usually exempt from those out of respect for the institution, the fact that he's part of a team. And just like, generally, he's not got his hands so dirty. Yeah. Like, I was trying to even look back to 2011 when the federal conservatives were found in contempt of parliament. And I don't even know that Ignatia for Leighton called for Harper to resign at that point, other than to hold an election because it's required because he's lost the confidence of the House. It was cabinet that was found in contempt of parliament at that point, not Harper himself. So... I'm sure at some point someone has called for a prime minister or premier to resign. It's at, fairly least, impressive. at least an opposition. It's fairly manager. rare. Yeah. So Sheer fired his big gun. Was it too early? Because that's what I've heard some people argue. Is it is it a better strategy to let Trudeau and the Liberals keep digging their own hole and let Wilson Raybould keep pouring the dirt on and let them have their own tire fire than to kind of get in there and start screaming partisan lines? Well, it's hard to say. If this is you know, the biggest single bomb that's going to drop in this and that the rest will be, you know, smaller, little explosions um, as, you know, more stuff comes out, then the inevitable question will be, okay, but, you know, why is, I don't know, some other conversation Jerry Butts had, the thing that now means the prime minister has to resign. So, So in that sense, like, call it now is there. But, like, at the same time, has it really gotten to the point where the prime minister has to resign? It's, I think the if you take the least charitable view of the testimony, it's gotten to that point, but I'm not sure the median view is there. The one advantage of the conservative response is it's far more noteworthy than the NDP response, which was that parliament should launch a national inquiry into this, get a retired judge to start picking it apart and go through line by line. And here the boys in short pants have some good analysis that highlights that that might actually preclude further justice committee hearings, which are turning out to be amazing, and the ethics commissioner investigation, which it's something Trudeau says he's totally on board with, because I guess that doesn't need to return any answers for months and months after 
which will have had an election. Well, also, and- the ethics commissioner is pretty limited in their mandate, and nobody's really alleging that the Conflict of Interest Act was broken here. Which is the ethics commissioner's mandate. So we'll probably end up getting to an inquiry at some point. But aside from the NDP saying a reasonable thing, yeah, like, it, I think it doesn't it's stand out as much. Clearly, whether or not procedurally now is the right time to do it, it's definitely reached the point where there should be an inquiry, whether or not that happens, you know, in March or three months from now. But like, it is pretty clear that there needs to be an inquiry. Probably several people need to resign at the very least. And like, you could definitely make a case that there's potential obstruction of justice here and potentially criminal acts. So, you know, there's a lot there. I'll leave it to the lawyers to argue over whether it technically meets the right definition under the criminal code, but it's obstruction of justice E at the very least. So a couple other things we haven't touched on yet in the testimony, uh, although we briefly mentioned it, was the finance minister's office involvement, because they called several times that uh, the attorney general actually had to say, you guys got to stop calling the office. This is getting too much. Nothing like needing to put the Department of Finance on the do not call list. So yeah, the chief of staff for uh, Bill Moyer, Ben Chin, who used to work in Victoria or another liberal government. Doing BC proud in Ottawa. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he he was quite involved. And I think the Morneau connection hasn't gotten a huge amount of press yet. It's mostly focused on the PMO, but that's quite concerning, I think, and needs to be looked at more. Additionally, this isn't explicitly said here, but it looks like there might have been direct contact between members of the prime minister's office and the prosecutors, which is really not good. So there's a paragraph in here talking about a September 6th phone call between the AG's chief of staff and Matthew Bouchard and Elder Marquez from the PMO. And they said they, and I'm quoting here, they said they understand that the individual Crown prosecutor wants to negotiate an agreement, but the director does not. They said that that they understand there are limits on what can be done and what can't, but they hear that our Deputy Minister of Justice, since they can get the PPSC to say, we think we should take some outside advice on this. So if you read between the lines there, it sounds like they have quite a bit of information about what's going on in terms of the internal discussions happening in the prosecutor's office. So, I mean, that isn't spelled out explicitly, but there needs to be more questions asked about that too, because that would be very improper. Yeah, it's not not a great look. The involvement of the finance minister, I mean, is definitely noteworthy and we should remember the scandals of the past involving Bill Morneau and... There's no Italian villas in this case. For how quiet a year he's had, it's good to see good old Bill back in the news. He was always seen as very close with Trudeau, so is Gerald Butts, so is Katie Telford. That cliquey sort of inner circle that shines wearing off, it seems. So, again, I don't know where this ends, but we'll hear Gerald Butts' testimony next week. And who knows... He resigned at not admitting to having done anything wrong. So it'll be interesting to see if he just tries to pull a, yeah, maybe I said those things, but I didn't mean them in a pressury way. I just meant them in a, hey, why don't we just find solutions and save the jobs kind of way. And a, I don't like the law, so we should find a way around it kind of way. Well, one way the government could get around the law is to just straight up change it. One of the big issues here is that if SNC is found guilty of one of these major corruption charges, they will have a 10-year ban on working with the federal government, and that is most of their, or at least that's a sizable chunk of their business. So the government bizarrely decided today to announce that they might be looking at changing some of those rules. Yes, so uh, Carla Qualtro uh, said that there are proposed changes to the federal government's integrity rules that are brought forward after hearing from industry players who felt the existing tools were too rigid. Uh, This referring to the 10-year ban on bidding on government contracts. She said this speaking to a parliamentary committee that they would be finalized over the next four to six weeks. But, like, if you're in the middle of the biggest scandal of this government over cutting corporate wrongdoers a huge amount of slack, is that really a great time to be bringing in new rules and announcing them about 
giving corporate wrongdoers a whole lot of slack. It feels kind of accident by timing, like probably something they were looking at for a while and then it just kind of came up by accident because no one decided to read the newspaper today. <laughs> no one or felt the last need three to weeks. put, you know, press pause on that one. But the jobs, they have to save those jobs. So next week we hear from Gerald Butts and how maybe Jody Wilson-Raybould's liberal membership card will be torn up in the next couple of days. The House of Commons did have an emergency debate on the question this evening. I didn't really pay attention, mainly because I was getting ready for podcasting, but also because when Parliament holds an emergency debate, it's really just talking points for a couple hours and then everyone goes home. So there'll be some good clips in there, but I would be shocked if we learned anything new. But who knows? I've been wrong. And I guess the one other thing that's going to happen tomorrow is Justin Trudeau is going to appoint a new Minister of Veterans Affairs and a handful of cabinet members shuffled because he needs to have a Minister of Veterans Affairs. But again, he just did a cabinet shuffle a few weeks ago to fill Scott Bryson's vacancy. And possibly demote an attorney general. So I'm not expecting much there. We'll talk more about Jody Wilson-Raybould next week, I'm sure. Moving on to segment two, Mr. Singh goes to Ottawa. This past Monday, the much-anticipated Burnaby South by-election, as well as Outremont and... The less-anticipated Sim- York Simcoe yes. by-election. Was held as we kind of led off at the top of the segment. Jade Meet Singh won his seat, finally, after 512 days between when he became leader and when he got elected to Parliament. Yeah, I heard a few people on podcasts and elsewhere pointing out the somewhat unprecedented length of time that was to string another National Party leader along. It's only a year, four months, and 24 days. Totally reasonable delay. The first mistake was Jugmeets for not going right for Parliament. The second mistake, or intentional jerky move, was Trudeau delaying holding the Burnaby South by-election until now. Well, of course, Kennedy could have resigned a little earlier, too. He held that seat longer than he needed to, well after he decided to run for mayor here. It's been a bit of a rough time, and turns out the strategy of not getting elected to parliament is a pretty bad one if you're a leader of a party that is represented in parliament. Well, but the strategy of throwing all your resources into a single riding can pay off, as Jagmeet Singh got 39% of the vote in Burnaby South, I was a bit bullish on my, maybe they'll even pull 50% last week, but 39 is a solid result and more than I think many were predicting. And that 39% he got was about 8,900 votes, 8,800 votes. The Liberals got 5,900 votes and 26%. Conservatives pulled 5,100 votes and 23%. And the People's Party posted their only respectable result in the three by-elections, with 2,400 votes and 11% for Laura Lynn Thompson, and two independents, one who lives in Seashelt, and the other who swore he would win, uh, shared about 400 votes between them. Yes, who intended to run as a party but didn't get the paperwork oh, yeah. done in time. Valentine Wu wanted to run for the Greens, but the Greens weren't running someone. I was actually thinking of... Oh, yeah, uh, Terry Grimwood wanted to start a new party. The Canada Fresh Party. Yes. Which is... Such a delightful name. Yeah, turns out that might be a political party. It's um, almost sounds like a soft drink or something else. So I uh, decided to take to Twitter and threw up a Twitter poll on uh, what Canada Fresh is, what people thought. 29 people who answered, uh, half of them thought it was a deodorant brand. It smells like moose. <laughs> it's uh, not really catching on as a political movement. So Jugmate Singh's 39%. A lot of people are pointing out, you know, that's a 4% increase over 2015 but with all by-elections i like to look at the raw numbers over the percentage the ndp polled 16,000 votes in 2015 and here they pulled 8,800 so they kept more than half their votes every other party lost more votes essentially they got fewer than half of the votes they got in the general so the ndp were able to turn out their voters at a better rate than the liberals or conservatives the green of course didn't run in burnaby south and the People's Party turned up 2,400 people, which is terrifying, because those are my neighbors now. That was a surprisingly high result. 
I think everyone kind of expected the People's Party to be kind of in the range where the other percent. Yeah, the two percent they got in the other yeah. two ridings. If you ever, yeah, if you actually take all three by election, it comes in like five point six percent, I think. So like that's not blowing everything out of the water, but like it's I think more significant than a didn't it's just the year ago parties generally do. So as much as I hate to say it, I, I don't think this necessarily means we can just write Matzine Bernier off right now. Well, it's such a weird situation because like, Bernier's original, before he splintered off and has done his whole new thing, he was always the libertarian conservative. You know, he held that ideological corner. And he was the one who stood at convention and said, conservatives have no reason to be in the bedroom. We should support same-sex marriage or at least not oppose it. He's supported it in different ways cannabis legalization or spoken out in favor of it, maybe not the liberals' approach to it, but in some form of drug decriminalization. And the People's Party candidate was actually criticized for that in Burnaby South because she is neither of those things. She is a far-right evangelical Christian nationalist, essentially, whose former talk show host and has done the whole anti-Soji, the liberals are out to churn your kids gay kind of conspiracy theories. The alliance he's building is bizarre and terrifying. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with just where the space was. The pure libertarians are like half a percent. But if you can create a We Hate Trudeau as a brand. Yeah, you have that, of course. That's also the conservatives. More the fact that, like explosions, political parties tend to follow the path of least resistance. And based on what all the other spots on the spectrum that was occupied, the kind of alt-right-tier spots, I think, is where that least resistance has gone to, even if it wasn't, like, Bernier's brand two years ago. But yeah, it's not, it's not great, and it has more traction than a party this new should have. At least Laura Lynn Thompson does, and she's built somewhat of a local profile, whereas... Yeah, they are in other words, I basically think she over overpolled the party by a lot. And in most cases, I think that 2% fringe party range they got is probably more realistic. But where Burnaby South was pretty bad news for the federal liberals, Outremont was pretty damn good news as they took the historically liberal riding back from the NDP. And despite Tom Mulcair's valiant effort to support the NDP over the last months, they weren't able to hold his riding. I say that with all sarcasm. The NDP did manage to pull 27.5% of the vote in Outremont for 4,100 people, but the Liberals pulled 6,000 with 40% of the vote. The most interesting thing in Outremont, though, to me, is the Greens, Daniel Green, which is just perfect branding, actually increased their vote from 2015 to the by-election. They got 1,575 people voted for them in 2015. In this by-election, over 1,900 people voted for them. It was the only candidate, only party to actually increase their vote in one by-election over the federal election before. And given the turnout in Outremont was 21%, that meant the Greens were in third place in Quebec, 13% of the vote. So not yet a beachhead for them, but, you know, it's something for Greens to celebrate and they like their little victories. It's better than the 925 the Conservatives got. Yeah, the fact the Bloc and Conservatives were behind the Greens is not good for either of them. And yeah, the People's Party got 232 votes, which is pitiful. So they're not a factor in Outremont, it turns out, but that would have been shocking if they were. Like I said, Outremont has historically been liberal. I think all but a couple MPs going back to early 1900s have been liberal. And even Mulcair was a Quebec liberal for a long time. So it's not a huge surprise the NDP lost that riding. There was a question about whether they would fall to third or fourth or lower. And I think some partisans were, or some pundits were wondering if they could even get the 25-26% threshold. And they did that, so they're not destroyed in Quebec. But the NDP has a lot of ground to rebuild if they want to hold on to the, I think, 15 seats they still have in the province. But yeah, again, Outremont was a place where the Liberals held their vote the best, the Greens built it, and everyone else suffered badly. The Conservatives suffered really badly in Outremont, actually. They they dropped from 4,000 votes to under 1,000. So not good news for Andrew Scheer. And York Simcoe, 
the most boring by-election, Scott Davidson, Scott with one T, got <laughs> got almost 9,000 votes and 54%, beating the liberal Sean Tanaka, who had got 4,800 votes and 29%. The interesting thing in York Simcoe would have been if the People's Party could have done better, because one of the things you might expect is it's people in strong conservative ridings who might feel not connected enough with the federal conservatives who might want to, you know, use it as a protest vote. I suspect we might see that a lot more in Alberta, where Maxime was always described as the Albertan from Quebec. But yeah, York Simcoe had a lot of conservative parties. They had the Progressive Canadian Party, who actually beat the Greens, which is not great for the Green candidate there. People's Party, the Libertarians, and someone from the National Citizens Alliance who got 22 votes. Oh, and John the Engineer ran yes, there. who has an amazing Wikipedia page and apparently holds the uh, Guinness record for the most elections contested and the most elections lost. He's only not lost one election he's contested, and that's because the election was cancelled because it was a by-election that got replaced with a general election. <laughs> yeah, so he ha- has a 97 out of 98 lost streak. He got, like, kicked out of the social credit party at one point and founded a Christian credit, I think it was. I was yeah. reading parts of it. Yeah, he lists his occupation as professional gambler known as Todge Professor or Great Canadian Gambler. Like, it, it, it's a great Wikipedia page. We'll, we'll link in the show notes, but he's a character. Indeed. Looking at the by-elections in total, I don't think there's too much we can glean from them. People always overanalyze by-elections, and we're even doing that. The turnouts were terrible, in my opinion. It was 30% in Burnaby South and 20% in the other two. So shame on you voters. I tried to vote in Burnaby South, or at least I called up and saw if I could. I didn't just show up at the polls. Is there really anything to read into this beyond Jugmeet Singh now survives to fight another day? No, they were very anticlimactic. Moving on to quick takes. We talked about last week the ongoing measles outbreak here in BC. 13 people have been diagnosed with the measles, which is not good. Luckily, no one has died yet. This is prompting an unusual but positive spirit in the legislature behind doing something and doing it good and correctly. So in question period, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, Andrew Wilkinson stood up and asked Adrian Dix, the health minister, you know, what's being done? Can we start offering free vaccines to anyone who wants them so we can make sure everyone is getting vaccinated, even if they're unsure? Can we start putting posters up in constituency offices, etc., etc.? Adrian Dix gave back some answers about what they are doing. And Andrew Ever even stood up and said, you know, that was great. Let's all applaud trying to work together better to solve a public health crisis. We want more of that. That's how minority legislatures, hell, even majority legislatures can work really well. The other big announcement following that is Adrian Dix has announced that BC is going to be, and it's somewhat unclear still, but it looks like we'll be following Ontario's model of requiring all students who enter the school system to have their vaccine status registered with the school. And that way the school can go, all right, we know who isn't vaccinated. And by asking you, are your kids vaccinated? It actually does, apparently, the science says, according to the provincial health officer, convince people to actually vaccinate their kids rather than sort of the strong arm of the government forcing them to get vaccinated. So, you know, now the uh, schools at least have a list of who doesn't have immunity and is in danger and everyone else. Well, and one thing that is the case in Ontario is if you do refuse, you have to sign a notarized letter saying, you know, I'm refusing on these moral, religious, philosophical grounds. And they have to sit you through a propaganda film, which is probably how the anti-vaxxers would describe it, but basically an educational video saying, hey, vaccines work, here's some of the science, here's why it's important, and if you don't do it, everyone else will die. Maybe you should do it, because it's free. This can apparently all be done in BC without a new law being passed. It'll just be part of the regulations of the Public Health Act, and I haven't dug deep into the Public Health Act, but every time I kind of come across it, it does strike me that it is vast in the powers it gave the executive in terms of responses to crises. But this is a good step. It won't be in place until September, but 
I think the provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, was supportive of that plan because you don't want to rush something if you want to do it right, even when it is a bit of an outbreak. I guess the one thing I'm still hoping for is actually what Wilkinson talked about, the let's make sure there are free measles vaccinations for anyone who might be unsure of their status, because as far as I know, there's nothing dangerous about if you've had your two shots getting a third booster or getting the second booster again, or just the people who need that extra booster. Check with your doctor. Yeah, but t- talk to your doctor about vaccines. Don't take medical advice from a podcast, but also vaccinate your kids and yourself if you haven't. So good steps. I'm interested to see the specifics and yeah, we'll go from there. Well, moving on from goodish medical news to bad medical news. Turns out our federal government has been spending $350,000 to send snake oil salesmen, effectively, homeopaths, to Honduras. There's a Quebec group called Terre Sans Frontières. Does that just translate to Earth Without Borders? I believe it does. My French is a little rusty, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's Earth Without Borders. Which is like cool. it is clearly a homage to Médecins Sans Frontières. Yeah, the Doctors Without Borders. So they run a global aid program where I guess they send aid workers to various countries around the world, and they applied for funding from Global Affairs Canada, and were granted it. And one of the aid workers they send are homeopaths. Um, they do send some. I think I'm going to call them real doctors. But yeah, the fact the government and now the quote-unquote evidence-based government is continuing to fund this is a bit disappointing. If you do dig into it, the program was funded in or started in May 2015, which means the funding applications were under the previous government. So I can at least blame Harper for this, but it's not really on brand for her. They, the there's an option to ta- there must be an option to cancel it. After all, past governments can't bind future governments. So, Although having worked in the charitable sector... And knowing a lot of people who apply for government grants, the idea of a five-year program just being terminated arbitrarily is a bit worrying. Is, is funding fake medicine and deciding to pull the plug on that really arbitrary? Yeah. Credit to Vic Adhopia, the senior reporter for health at CBC News, for digging into whichever department registry he found this in. We'll throw the link in the show notes, but it's very well written up. And yeah. Not a fan of the government spending money on homeopathy. I, yeah, think we both agree on that. Well, moving to court news for a couple stories. The BC government, you'll recall, had launched a lawsuit against the Alberta government in the midst of the wine war stuff that was happening almost a year ago now, it feels like. The Alberta government had proposed and then passed a bill to turn off the taps. This was the Preserving Canada's Economic Prosperity Act, which would basically allow Alberta to restrict the flow of oil to BC so that if we were stopping the pipeline, they could stop our oil and then our gas prices would be... Basically, it was a trade war thing. So BC are trying to make a constitutional argument that this was an unjust law and the Supreme Court, or I think it was the Alberta court, ruled that given the Alberta government hasn't actually enacted this law, there's no recourse, which prompted Attorney General of BC, David Eby, to say, when they've made their intention clear, why do we have to wait to get punched in the face to argue that we shouldn't be allowed to punch us in the face? Well, he's the lawyer. He sh- shouldn't he know that kind of has to have an active pace or controversy? The answer is the court needs to see how damaged your face gets from the punch, I think, before they decide. There has to be an injury. Except in physical violence where threats are a crime. But I think like, the analogy is getting tortured. Well, yeah, it's close enough under the regulatory powers that they probably actually have to see it in action before they can rule on anything. Just exactly what they said. So I don't expect we'll see Notley or Premier Kenny, if he gets elected, enact this because right now the hurdle to Trans Mountain being built is not British Columbia, but the federal government's inability to steer it through the NEB? Well, the NEB actually just said yes. Yeah, the NEB said this. past week? I really, it's, we just, talk- it's just impatience now that Alberta is showing. I saw some um, indigenous consultations to do. But th- they gave the go-ahead for the whales, so that part's being checked off now. And I also had some recommendations for BC ferries as well, which 
seems slightly out of their jurisdiction. I, I haven't really looked into it. I think the point, and the BC Liberals brought this up in question period, is if we're going to complain about the effect of oil tankers on killer whales, we should also be talking about all the ferries that go by them. That, that is a fair point. Like, it is marine traffic, not one specific type of marine traffic. That is but the, the way the BC Liberals went wrong here is they complained that the BC NDP was increasing ferry service and therefore threatening the whales, which might be scientifically true, but it's not like the Liberals were cutting ferry service to save the whales. It's just getting bizarre at that point. But yes, I do agree we need to figure out how to save all the whales from both the ferries and the tankers. Well, and the other case going to BC Supreme Court is over the community benefits agreement that the BC NDP brought in. These are the batch of changes to how the government does procurement and builds big projects where most controversially all the workers will have to be from union shops or firms or join them to stay working on these projects. But there's also other stipulations that there's money for training and so forth. The Independent Contractors and Business Association has been a vocal critic of this. Honestly, I think they've been a vocal critic of almost everything the NDP has done and are not as critical of the BC Liberals in general. But maybe that's just where their friends are. So they're filing a lawsuit over this. They're joined by a few other trade groups. And they're complaining that, you know, freezing out 85% of construction workers from taxpayer-funded projects is unfair, discriminatory, and just plain wrong. I tried briefly to look for their factum or some statement of claim, or, and I didn't find it right away. I, I'm struggling to see what the constitutional argument that my people don't want to belong to a union can win. But I don't know, maybe they'll be able to convince a court of it. As we just recorded with Micah, which will come up in a future episode, courts make unexpected decisions all the time. Yeah, I mean, I could see the arguments on policy grounds here. I'm having trouble seeing the legal arguments directly. Ah, we'll have to wait to actually see what the real arguments are. And oh, maybe that's my aunt who knows union law. And finally, Andrew Wilkinson has said something dumb about renting. I'm just going to play the clip. Let's protect the renters. I was a renter for 15 years. I lived in a dozen different rentals. It was challenging at times, but it was fun. It was part of growing up and getting better. We've all done it. It's kind of a wacky time of life, but it can be really enjoyable. Being a renter is a fact of life. It's a rite of passage. So hashtag wacky time started trending. And so many people from all over my Twitter, even nonpartisan people, like a lot of journalists were starting to point out Actually, it's a little bit different being a renter now than maybe when you were growing up, Mr. Wilkinson, or Dr. <laughs> Dr. Lawyer Wilkinson. And it's not so much that it's a choice as the only way to live in somewhere like Vancouver. And even then, you're facing rents that are adjusted for inflation, still double or triple what they would otherwise have been in days gone by. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it was Jess McElroy who looked up the what the rents would have been. There would have been something on the order of $600 to $900 in, in current dollars. The vacancy rate was like 2.1%, I want to say. Like that's more than double it is now. So it was easier to find a place and it would be cheaper, which I mean, the, the two are related, so that made sense. But like it's clearly not the case that Wilkinson's experience is necessarily reflective of the current experience and he definitely made the mistake that far too many people do of assuming their experience is more representative than it is but at the same time like read the room man like this is not the time to go you know start ad-libbing about your time as a renter in like the early 90s this afternoon feeling some of the blowback he did try to respond to this or put it another way and on a four tweet thread, which I'll just read for his benefit of the doubt. He says, I was a renter for 15 years. I had a low paying job in student loans. Just adding in here that tuition has also jumped significantly in the last, I'm going to say 30 years. Wilkinson goes on. I know what it feels like to worry about making ends meet each month. I know what it feels like to dream of a better situation, more choice and freedom in life. 
The government's job is to make achieving your dreams possible. If you dream of a better job, a better home, a higher income, those are all opportunities that are crushed when this NDP government closes the door to investment and smothers job creation with taxes. Looking back on my time as a renter, I remember working hard, living with roommates in tight apartments and planning my future. Some people find themselves renters by choice, others not. They are all helped when we support the rental market with co-op housing and ensure there is ample supply. The final tweet in there has 54 replies and 42 likes, which we in the biz of Twitter like to call ratioed when you get more replies, which tend to be snarky things like friend of the pod Renil Prasad saying, this is some exceptionally poor backtracking, or friend of Canby Report Jennifer Bradshaw saying, I'm just here for the inevitable ratio, and so on and so forth, as people both tell their stories of struggling to pay the rent and others just calling him a jackass because it's Twitter. So Twitter's yeah. a terrible place. Oh yeah, awful website. But sometimes it's amusing. It, again, plays to the worst like stereotype of Wilkinson and the liberals, which is the out-of-touch elites who don't understand the struggles many people are facing today. Yeah, it's not a good look for him. I, mean, I saw some people acting as if this was, you know, going to be the nail in the coffin that would prevent him from getting real. Like, few, few attack ads will do it. Like, But, like, this doesn't give any new information. Yeah, w- Wilkinson's out of, a little out of touch with the, the modern realities of the housing market. Like, it, everyone kind of knew that already. And, oh, like, and it's I, not really going to change much. I Like, the, the Liberals have a pretty high vote floor. And I was just going to say, I think, like, 30% of the province probably agrees with them, even if the perception doesn't match the reality for the other 70% of the province. But, you know, 30% is a good floor, and you just need to convince another 5 to 10% of people oh, because probably, we live under yeah. first-past-the-post. Uh, I'd say the floor is probably more like 35 to 40. They got 40% of the vote after 16 years, several scandals, pretty unpopular at that point, and, and still managed to get like a 40% plurality of the vote and the seats like it's a fairly high floor they're at right and i don't think wilkinson has christy clark's communications ability if anything if this is any indication but that's not like a 10 point difference maker so yeah not a great look but not the you know uber damaging thing some people seem to think it is and that has been Politicos. Find links to everything we talked about at politicos.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com slash If you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Our intro music is Beautiful British Columbia by Sergei Plotnikov. Thanks for listening.